Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of, God, of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. The king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. Lane, you know, last week you didn't see me, saw Mike. He did a great job, by the way. I uh, watched his message, and I really appreciated everything he had to say. It's so nice being in a church full of people who are uh, skilled. You know, I was watching Rachel up here singing and Darla playing and Aaron, our foundation, the steadfast, the immovable one in the worship team. But nevertheless, there's so many people here who God has blessed with gifts in such a tremendous way that it's, it's nice to know that I'm, I'm serving the Lord with a team, with a family and not necessarily uh, having to toe the line on my own. So I took a vacation last week with Lane. We took a ride uh, to some friends who live in Missouri. And, you know, Lane's funny. Whenever we decide to take a trip, the first thing she does is she pulls out the atlas, okay, and her little magnifying glass. No, I'm kidding, not the magnifying glass. <laughs> but she's obsessed with atlases. And so she uh, will, every time we go someplace, we're going to Israel next year in January. So we have a big roadmap of Israel. She wants me to trace out our route and everywhere we're going and stops because she wants to know where it is we're going and what we might see along the way. I call her our family's docent. Every time we go someplace, she'll say, you'll notice on the left-hand side, this building built in 1965. It's really awesome, actually. So I give her a hard time, but it's great. I look at Google Maps. It doesn't tell you so much information. It just tells me how to get there, where I'm going, and where I can stop for gas. But nevertheless, that's important. We didn't just teleport to Missouri. We needed to know how to get there. And there was a process in doing it. You see, there's a process, or the same holds true for everyday worship. It's not something that we just start doing perfectly uh, from the moment. We just don't wake up one day and you say, you know what, I'm going to make every moment of every day of every, for the rest of my life, all centered on God all the time. It's something that we begin and we work at. Two weeks ago, I talked about Brother Lawrence, a 17th century uh, monk who decided that he was going to seek every moment of his life, Coram Deo. 
It's Latin for before God or in the presence of God, recognizing that everything he did, every function he undertook, everything he spoke, every thought he had was done with God looking upon him in the presence of God. When you read how he did this, he says it himself. It's obvious that it was a process. It was a journey. It took practice and perspective and patience. As I mentioned, he was the pots and pans guy in the monastery. And he realized that when something of this life would bubble up and would draw his attention away from the Lord, he would come back to his pots and pans and then his mind would wander. And suddenly he'd realize that he had to come back, that he had to purposely put himself in the presence of God again and to make that conscious decision. Today I want to talk to you about how the journey to everyday worship begins with our sense of creatureliness. It's traversed through obedience. It's characterized by blessings along the way, and its ultimate goal is the glory of God. You see, we need to understand this. We need to understand how it is that we are called to worship, because this is what we were made for. We were made to reflect who God is, to manifest his character through our own words, through our own behaviors, through our own attitudes and perspectives to a fallen world. Sometimes we fall into the idea that worship is something that happens at 10.15 on Sunday morning. Dan Keel talks a lot about uh, worship in our meetings and in our conversations. And one of the things he said that stuck with me for quite some time now is the idea that we come on Sunday to overflow what has already been accrued throughout the week. So many of us make worship shallow and we say, oh, kind of barely dragging across the finish line. And we say, oh, I need something on Sunday to make me feel better. So it's got to have music that <laughs> affects me well. It's got to have a good message, otherwise my whole week is ruined. The prayer's got to be good. Someone so better not be dressed a certain way. All of these issues that we minimize what worship is really supposed to be, an everyday, all-day function of what it means to be a Christian. We will limit who God is by limiting our worship of him. So this morning we're going to talk about Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a psalm, as, you've, as you heard Adam and Andrea reading, a psalm actually they used in temple services on the first day of the week. They began their week with a reminder of what it means to worship the Lord of glory. And so I would like us to look at this because this passage, this psalm, gives us a sort of roadmap. It describes the process to what everyday worship looks like if we're paying attention to what it says. So it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In the scripture, the idea of seas and rivers and waters often brings with it the idea of chaos, the idea of disorder. In fact, those who don't know the Lord and who seek to rail against him and thrust themselves against the one true God are often described of as the waters. Not me. The waters, <laughs> chaos, disorder, rebellion in some ways. I mean, we see it right from the very beginning in Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That word tohom means void, abyss, primordial, ooze. Don't email me about evolution. That's not what I meant. An ancient flood. Waters, chaos, disorder. It says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
just a sort of a side note, I was talking to my friend Shannon today, and we were talking about the he or, or the other day, we were talking about the Hebrew word for water, which is mayim, mayim. And the Hebrew word for heaven is hashamayim. And so they're cognates of one another. They're related to one another. The idea that we are surrounded by waters, that before anything was made, all there was was to home, water. And God, when he said, let there be, sort of created a little bubble in it, boop, <laughs> And within that bubble created everything down to us, the centerpiece of his creation. This idea that God is the one who establishes the world and sets it upon the surface of the deep shows that God controls the uncontrollable. This should be a lesson for us when we consider our own circumstances. You know what I'm talking about, the phone call when life happens. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. When everything seems to be falling apart, everything's unraveling. It just seems too hard or too complicated. Life seems to just be out of control. That God controls the uncontrollable. You see, only God in his unmatchable might could tame the chaos and bring order from disorder. When we consider sin and we consider its effects, we talk about it being a disintegrating effect, a disorderly effect in the lives of and the, of, of creatures and of all of creation. God is in the business of restoring order from disorder. And because he can do that, everything is his. The fact that he is unmatched in might and power, the fact that he controls everything, and the fact that he created everything makes all of our lives his. It says the earth and the people therein. So not only is the earth God's, and all of creation gods, the universe, the stars. That, you know, do you ever consider, do you ever watch some of those uh, Discovery Channel or other science uh, networks, stuff about space? It's so astounding to me that there are distances that are millions of light years. You know how far a light year is? A light year is the distance light travels over the course of a year. Now imagine a million light years. How vast the universe is. What's out there that we don't know of? We think we're so smart here, yet we're just a little blip. God created that. God created that. He's the creator of all there is, everything, the earth, the creation, and not only that, the people who dwell in it, us. We all are gods. We all belong to God. Whether or not we believe that God is our God, Everybody on the earth belongs to God. He was made. They were made for him. So as we take the journey, as we start the journey towards everyday worship, we need to recognize the false dichotomy that we often place in our lives between what's God's and what's mine's. What's mine? We need to separate the idea that, well, this portion is what I'll worry about, that portion is what God will worry about. In other words, Sunday is for worship, but every other day is for whatever I want. Every day, every moment, every thought, every deed, every spoken word, God. You see, you are a creature. That sense of smallness that we see when we gaze up into the night sky and we consider the distance of the heavens, that smallness, that's our creatureliness. That is us sensing the fact that we were created and we are not the creators. We didn't just happen, it wasn't by accident that God 
in his infinite wisdom and power, created everything out of nothing. Your dependency ultimately is upon God, whether you admit it or recognize it. I mean, your world is not your own. It's not your money. I think about that. I look at my account all the time. How much money, how much of my money do I have left? Maybe the right answer for all of us is how much of God's money is left in my care? We look at our our homes. We think of all of the property we have, the plans that we make. Next year, I'll do this. Or after I do this, I'll do that. All those plans are God's. Your family, the children that you spend so much time protecting and loving and cultivating and covet, I mean, those are God's kids. God's kids. When we frame the idea of our stewardship as parents over our children and recognizing that they are really ultimately God's, it takes so much pressure off of us as parents. When we recognize that we're called to just simply do what God's called us to do and he has his own plan because in the end, they're his. They're his. In your desires, I struggle with this one. I know what I want and I want what I want. But God doesn't want it. So what do I do? In the end, I wasn't made for myself and you were bought with a price. You're a creature and God's a creator. So we need to shift our mind from what is mine to Christ and his kingdom. When we understand our creatureliness and the gulf that exists between creator and creature, we can start the journey toward everyday worship. We sang in holy, holy, holy today. It says, though the darkness hide thee. That's a phrase that Luther would have alluded to, okay, called Deus, Deus absconditus. It means hidden God. That God in his otherness, that God in his creatorship is so far removed and different and other than anything we can imagine. It's a categorical difference. They're not like us. We make the mistake when we uh, make God too human. Like, after all, how can we understand God to be loving and wrathful at the same time? I can't be loving and wrathful at the same time, although as my kid, there's probably a couple of times that I can get there. For the most part, when we think about love and wrath, we think about two opposite and opposing ideas. Yet God, because he's complex and perfect, indifferent, can have both of those, what we would call human emotions, at the same time. God is different. We lose the idea of who God is and our creatureliness when we lose the idea of God's transcendence. Theologians talk about two aspects of God. One is his transcendence. That's his above and outside of his creation. That God is not creation itself. So people who worship nature, called pantheists, would look at at nature and trees and everything and say, this is God. Transcendence argues against that and says that God is outside and above all that he's created. Yet at the same time, there is the idea of God's imminence. That God is somehow woven into everything that there is. We hear it in the New Testament where it says, in him we move and have our being. The idea that God is secret and in our hearts and within us. In this day and age, in this culture, we like to focus a lot on the imminence of God. God's my God in my secret place. Don't talk to me about my God in my personal walk. This is where I find God. And we lose the sense that God is glorious and majestic and far exalted above anything that he's created. We lose the sense that God is big and we are small and so our problems get too large. And we consider, how can I fix this? Instead of, how has God already 
shown he's in control, and he will be in control again. When you think about how far God is from us, the distance that had to be gulfed, we can only do that through Jesus Christ, the perfect man and the perfect God who came to earth to die for our sins, to bridge that gap. Even though we trust in Jesus and we know that the Lord has made a way for us to be reconciled with the Father, bridging those, that infinite gulf between us, we must not lose sight in our worship and understanding of God that he is big, that he is mighty, that he is holy, that he is glorious. Let me ask you, does it feel like the culture is out of control right now? Does it feel like you're... Uh, without any tools that you need to deal with it. I don't know what to say half the time. I don't know what to think. You guys pay me to do it. I don't know what to do with a lot of these situations. I can't make heads or tails of some of these things. It feels like they're winning. Doesn't it feel like they're winning? When we remember who God is and what God has done, we know they don't win. They don't win. And we have a responsibility to do our part as God's ambassadors with the knowledge that God is in control, and he's the God who takes disorder and makes order, and he will so again. The second principle from this text that we need to learn for our journey is the vehicle to everyday worship is obedience. So just as Lane and I took a road trip, we knew that um, the beginning, our starting point, the way we get there, the means we get to everyday worship is our obedience. David asks a question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? You see, God is so exalted and transcendent. He's so perfect and holy. David says, how can I get there? How can I get there? For the Jews, the worship of God was centered at the temple. More specifically, it was centered in the holy of holies at the temple. It contained the Ark of the Covenant. This was the very center of the temple in Jerusalem, which was built upon Mount Moriah. Interestingly enough, Mount Moriah is also the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed his son. And so whenever you go to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, you go up. Do you ever read the Bible? It always says we went up to Jerusalem. That's not just a euphemism or some idiom. They're literally going up to Jerusalem. They're ascending the hill of the Lord. And as I mentioned, the Holy of Holies is really the center of worship because it contained the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God himself. Today, all that's left of the temple complex is really the Western Wall. And we see pictures and videos of uh, visitors and pilgrims going to the wall and praying to the Lord. But if you pay attention, they're not looking right at the wall. They're not faced directly at the wall. They're turned slightly to the left. And so when I was there, I began, when I was in Israel, I asked the question, why are they turned? And our guide said, well, the Holy of Holies isn't right here, it's over here. So they're facing the Holy of Holies. They're not just praying toward the temple, but they're praying towards what the historical presence of God on earth. As you climb the mountain to worship in the temple upon Mount Moriah, the Jews, ancient Jews, created pools of running water, and you would do what was known as a mikvah. You would cleanse yourself. A ceremonial cleansing, you read it throughout the scripture in the Old Testament and the New. You would prepare your heart for standing in the presence of God. And as you went, you would read from the Psalms of Ascent. As you ascended closer and closer to the temple, washing yourself, praying to the Lord, preparing your heart for worship. And so David's saying, who can do that? Who can truly ascend the hill? 
of God, God's holy mountain, and stand in his holy place. And he answers us. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. You see, the person who can have intimacy with God is the one who is obedient. This is a hard pill to swallow. I admit this is hard for me. Maybe you can, maybe you can sort of relate to this. Do you ever say, well, I want to obey God, but I don't feel like it? <laughs> and it's more than not just a, a sin issue. It's more than I'm just not feeling, I'm not feeling worship today. I'm not feeling something today. The truth is, as the scripture tells us, if you want intimacy with God, obey him. That when we step out in faith, when we do what God has asked us to do for our own good and his glory, we have a sense of togetherness, a sense of closeness with God. I don't know how many times I've been in a worship service where in the previous week I've done something stupid, I've, I've asked something stupid, I've said something stupid. That's probably the big thing. I've said something stupid, and it continues to wear on me, even though I've confessed it, I've entrusted it to the Lord. Yet that breach of God's will in my life has affected the way that I feel when I come to worship. And it's only when I recognize what Christ has done in the face of that, that the Holy Spirit unleashes the feelings that I was really searching for. It says clean hands. The person that does what is right. A pure heart. The person who does what is right for the right reasons. See, it's easy for us to obey God and to do what he's asked us to do without really wanting to do it. We just do it with a, a sense of emptiness in our heart. But what God asks us is to cleanse our heart, to recognize what's happening inside, to admit that in honesty, integrity before him, and ask him, look to him, to give us the desires of our heart. One who's not idolatrous, it says, one who does not lift up one's soul to that which is false. Do you realize that's you? That's me. Every time we entrust ourselves to something other than God, money, a retirement plan, our home, our intelligence, anything, we're lifting our heart up to that which is false because it cannot deliver. Only God can deliver. Finally, one who has integrity, one who does not swear deceitfully, one whose insides matches their outsides. You know, there are times that we don't feel like worshiping because we predicate our worship on worshipful feelings. Sometimes we lack worshipful feelings because we've sinned against others, like I said. We're lifting up our soul to something false. Or we're living a lie and simply not giving up something God has told us to put down. Sometimes we don't feel like worshiping because we're distracted or worried. We're thinking about a situation in our life that feels out of control and we don't know what to do. Now that sounds benign enough to say, well, everybody worries, everybody struggles, but you do realize at the bottom, at the end, when you, when you consider it all, that our fear, distraction, and worry is really rooted in a sinful place. Because we are giving so much power to something other than God. When God is calling us to worship him and lift our hearts to him, trusting that he is the one who makes order out of disorder. You see, our feelings of worship come as a response to and a blessing for obedience. Sometimes I don't want to worship. Sometimes I sit there and I pray, Lord, give me the heart to preach or give me the heart to worship you today. I know you do too because I can see it in your face. It's obvious. Some of us just aren't here some days. 
It's the truth. Sometimes I don't want to worship. Sometimes I don't want to come to church or lead a small group or participate in a small group or be in a Bible study. But I've learned throughout my Christian life that the times I don't want to do something God's asking me to do are the very times I need to do them. I'm always astounded by the times I don't want to do a specific thing God has asked me to do. I do it, and afterwards I say, oh my gosh, I feel so good. I feel, but I really needed that. That's probably the phrase I would say. Maybe you said it. I'm so glad I came today. Maybe that's something you can relate to. It's because that is us making a choice to push against our sin nature and to do what God is asking us to do. Because our sin is sneaky, and we'll find ways to not worship him with our every, uh, everything we have. Third principle out of the text, blessings are the rest stops along the journey of everyday worship. Blessings are the rest stops. So we're using our metaphor of a journey. The blessing's not the destination. The blessings are moments of respite and a demonstration of God's goodness along the way. He says the one who does not swear deceitfully, the one with clean hands and a pure heart, he says he will receive, verse 5, from the Lord and uh, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. You see, the reward for our obedience, but nevertheless, a rest stop along the way is blessing. Now, I'm not suggesting that if we obey God and follow God, that every aspect of our lives is going to be happy, joyous, free, comfortable. In fact, quite the opposite. For those of you who've walked with the Lord for a long time know that when you make the decision to put down what you want and to follow God in his righteous will, it often makes you a target. When I was in prison, I would often minister to guys who would ask questions about the Lord. And they'd want to come, you know, it's usually started with a good question. And so we would begin to talk, and pretty soon you could see something happening. You could actually witness the Spirit working in this person's life, touching their mind, touching their heart, and you could sense a change. And I'd always warn them as they'd walk away, they'd have this really just top, you know, this mountaintop moment with the Lord. I'd say, be careful, because now you're a target. You need to be extra careful in the coming days because someone's going to try to pull your card. Someone's going to try to knock you off your square. Someone's going to try to distract you from what you are feeling and understanding and seeking right now. And more times than not, they were unprepared despite my warnings and things would happen. How about any time you've wanted to do something or have done something good for the Lord or poised to do something? And it felt like there was a big spiritual demonic target on your back. Many of us struggle with being attacked. And the first thing to say that I often say to myself is, what am I doing wrong? Yet we need to consider that often it's what we're doing right that is bringing these feelings. So the life of the Christian will not always be easy. But God in his grace, in his glorious grace, does not leave us to just cold obedience for the sake of obedience. He gives us the sweet with what is sometimes sour. And he wants what's best for us. He's defined it in his will. And when we do, we receive positive feelings and blessings along the way. You see, God created an order for his children to live by. An order that would provide ultimately perfect peace, joy, and blessing in his presence. I mean, think of Eden. God created Adam and Eve in Eden to be a place of intimacy with God, to walk with him, to interact with him. 
to be loved and loved, to know and be known in a perfect place of idyllic circumstances. Yet we know sin happened and that was lost. You see, in the face of persecution or our sinful desires or our complicated circumstances, we are bound to suffer from time to time. But God is good. God is good and he will deliver blessings in his time according to his will and we should just eat them up. These are moments for us to stop. These are moments for us to relish in the presence of God and what he's done in our lives. I mean, think it's like getting out of the car and stretching your legs after a long segment of driving. It's a cold drink of water on a hot, parched day. It is an opportunity for us to center ourselves back on the God who created us, the God who's called us to obedience, and the God who's called us to intimacy with him. You see, but we don't seek the blessing as the natural outcome. We seek obedience, and blessings come naturally. Again, when I was um, in college, that's how I say in jail or in prison to people, in college, okay? When I was in jail, jail, for those of you who don't know, are places for people who are awaiting trial. Prison is a place for people who have already been convicted. So there's two separate mindsets that occur between these two places. One, your hair's on fire, you're going to do whatever you can to get as little or no time. The other one, you already got your time, there's nothing you can do to change it, so now you just need to live your life. Very different environments between the two places. Very different. In jail, people will form up in circles every night and piously pray pray prayers and say, God, you're so good and so loving and I thank you for doing this. And, And then they get sentenced and it all goes out the window. They were hoping their obedience would bring the blessing that they desired. Yet in prison, you go to a worship service in prison, those people know they're broken. The ones who are at a worship service in prison, they're there for the right reasons. And let me tell you about worship service in prison. It ain't like the West Suburbs for the most part, okay? We've had to stop worship in prison one time because the floor was moving and they thought it was going to structurally damage the building. That's worship. That's, I've lost everything, all I have is you worship. That is, all my earthly belongings fit in a box this big, so I have nothing else to lose. That is real worship. I'm convinced that there is a revival that's occurring among people in prison. People who know they're broken. I mean, after all, I was there. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. (laughs) People know that there's no place else to go except God. And those who embrace them and we see the Spirit in their lives It's something different. And they relish the blessings that they have because they have so little. We need to live like that. We need to live like prison Christians and not like jail Christians. Okay? We need to seek God for seeking God and love the blessings that he gives, not the blessings alone for themselves. So if blessings are not the goal of our obedience and worship is the goal of our obedience, to understand, let me rephrase that. Blessings aren't the purpose of our obedience. What is? Glory. God's glory. Isaiah 43 says that God's people were created to glorify him. He says, those people, my people, who I created for my glory. And David goes on and does that right here in this psalm. We see this progression. He starts, God's creator. He moves to obedience. He walks through blessing. 
And the response, the goal, the destination of the journey is God's glory. After considering God's transcendence and how big God is and mighty and the blessing that he receives, David turns and arrives at our destination. The fourth principle, the destination of our everyday worship is the glory of God. The destination of our everyday worship is the glory of God. Listen to this hymn. When I I read this, I want to... When I think about how out of control this world is and how out of control I feel, when I feel like I'm being oppressed and I feel like like we're losing, I read something like this and God's in control. That's my God. This is who's in control, not me. This is who's going to win. Listen, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. That word there is God's personal name, Yahweh. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. Host means armies. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Salah. It's almost like a mic drop moment. Salah. Boom. David is speaking to the very gates and doors of the temple. He's envisioning by faith Christ entering the temple and sort of the doors, personifying the doors, saying, stand at attention. Because the king of glory is entering his rightful realm now, mighty in battle. We often, how often do you think of God in this way? I mean, let's be honest. When you're considering God, when you're reading your Bible, is there ever a time where you're just like, yes, the king of glory We need to remember that God is complex. His character is not in conflict with itself, though. God is love, there is no doubt. God is patient and kind. He is merciful, but God is also king, mighty, glorious, and victorious. How often in movies and literature is the big brother called on to teach the bullies of the little brother a lesson? Jesus is our big brother, and he will teach our bullies the spiritual forces that are at work right now in this world. At the last analysis, the, capital L, lesson. We serve the Lord, mighty in battle. We are not without a champion in this world. We are not with one who is going to take our plight before the throne of God. And we are not without one who doesn't have the power to achieve it. David calls God the Lord of hosts and the King of glory. And in the New Testament, both Paul and James called Jesus the Lord of glory, and he is. There's a picture. When I went on vacation, there's a picture I recognized. It was Jerusalem and the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. And as you look, the temple, so you have the, the, the mosque that's there with the gold dome. I'm sure you've all seen that in pictures. And then from standing on the east of the city, you're looking at the city. Right before that, you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's another portion of the mosque. And then you have a wall with a gate in it. Right? The gate has been bricked up. The gate's not open. The gate's closed. And in front of the gate is an Islamic or a Muslim cemetery. So when I think it was the Byzantines came, they said, because they knew what the scripture said, that the Lord of glory was going to enter the east gate. So they said, oh yeah, we're going to brick up that gate and we're going to lay unclean things, burial area, in front 
of that gate. As somehow they would prevent our Messiah upon his return, standing on the Mount of Olives and entering the city from the east gate as if he wouldn't want to step over the, the place, the unclean bodies of the dead. But guess what? They're not going to be there. Those bodies are going to be out of the ground. And the Lord is going to lift up those gates and enter through the east gate into his rightful place where he will rule in perfect justice and righteousness forever and ever, where we will celebrate our champion in perfect peace, free from the body and from the circumstances that we're dealing with. New bodies, new circumstances, think of that. And the Lord is going to do that for his glory. So when we don't feel like worshiping, when we're, when we're misunderstanding what worship means, remember, the journey toward everyday worship begins with recognizing the distinction between the creature and the creator. The vehicle to everyday worship is obedience. It's necessary to get there. We can't get there any other way. Blessings are the rest stops along the journey, and we should embrace them with joy. And the destination of our everyday worship is the glory of God. Let us not be like those who simply worship on Sunday and seek a great experience in worship. Part of our vision statement, that we would encounter God. Let's encounter God. Let's not seek an experience for experience sake. Like those who simply seek to be refilled at the beginning of the week. I mean, what if your life were different? What if your life was lived quorum Deo in the presence of God? knowing that you have a champion who will fight your every battle, the Lord of glory? What if you lived a life that was constantly in the presence of God? What if your life was characterized by a constant and abiding recognition of your creator and a perpetual effort to ascend his hill and stand in his holy place? Well, that's my prayer for all of us. I'd love to have to counsel worship because the floor is about to cave in. Let us be those people. May it be so. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this uh, just, Lord, we say reminder, but it sounds too weak. Lord, just make us live in the fact that you are the king of glory. That as we live and move and have our being, yes, Lord, you're in us and we sense your presence and your love and your compassion, but you are a warrior. That you are a conquering king who defends those who are his, us. Lord, we thank you that one day you are going to demolish the east gate, that you are going to step through and enter your rightful realm once and for all. And we look forward to that day, Lord, when we can stand in your presence and just bask in the culmination of your great plan for mankind. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBC Elm. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbcelm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.